So, any questions or comments left over from any other previous gathering? Now that Tom Schott has moved to Portland, it rarely happens. He always had something. Okay. Number 229. If a man wants to be a concert pianist, the master told us, he must practice playing for 12 hours a day. One who pecks half-heartedly at the keyboard a few minutes at a time, then gets up and eats something, will never become a true musician. (laughs) Um, That isn't the way to seek God. That isn't the way to seek God either. You can't expect to find him by only half trying. Ram Gopal, the sleepless saint in autobiography of a yogi, meditated 18 hours a day for 20 years, then 20 hours a day for another 22 years. And even he said, I don't know if I have yet found favor in God's eyes. It is very hard to find God. Those who make the effort, however, will find him. And out of the small minority who seek him that way, we are blessed with quite a few here. Just look at St. Lynn, the master The master went on to praise him, speaking of how this disciple would spend hours at a time in samadhi on the lawn of the Encinitas Hermitage. Um, There's a a, a joke that I've always enjoyed of some, after the performance, some famous violinist gave a concert and some fan met him backstage and said, I'd give my life to be able to play the violin the way you do. And the man just said quite simply, I have. And that, you know, it's just that, Yes, of course. It shows, doesn't it? That's what it's like. So Master's trying to get us to understand if something as relatively simple as being a concert musician, which to us would still look like an enormous amount of discipline, he said that's what's really needed when we find God. The thing about that, the sincerity of that spiritual search for us at this time is the sincerity of our search is all complicated by our obligation to master at this time in history to help establish his work in this world. I find all through uh, Swami's comments over many, many years, he's always balancing those two factors, and he talks about it in his own life, because he he used to lament in his life his lack of um, samadhi experiences and his general lack of opportunity to be able to meditate in... um, at the magnitude and at the quantity that he felt inclined to. And his own inner inclination, as he said, to be a hermit. But he, and he said, just quite simply, every time in my life I've tried to, tried to go in that direction. He said, I'm simply not allowed to do it. And he also says, you know, every time he would have an opportunity um, to, to seek the kind of depth in meditation that he was drawn to do, he would always find that he was again being pulled in another direction. And in, in objective conversation, he would say, if he could meditate like that, he wouldn't do any of this work. And even though Master never said anything to him, like Ramakrishna said to Vivekananda, Ramakrishna said to Vivekananda, he gave him a very deep experience of samadhi, and then Ramakrishna said to Vivekananda, I'm going to take the key and I'm going to put it in my pocket. Because if you have it, you won't do anything else that you're, that's needed. So I'm going to keep it in my pocket until you've done what you need to do. And then when you, as as Ramakrishna put it to him, you realize who you are, you will leave. And he died at 39. But in the meantime, he came to America and he established the Vedanta order and he did many things that he had to do. And Swami was always saying, if he had had that side of it to the extent that he 
wanted it, he would never have done this work. Simultaneously, he would, he would make comments that indicated that it wasn't a question of realization, it was just a question of what was being asked of him. So all of us, many of us, find ourselves in this atmosphere doing this work, which is hardly conducive to 20 hours of meditation a day. So we, we also have to understand what's being asked of us. And it, it's, it's not... We have to do with that full zeal what's being asked of us rather than imagine that it's a sign of uh, lack of dedication that we don't have that kind of a life. Swami just many times just shrugged and said, this just isn't the lifetime in which we get to do that because we had to come to this very materialistic country and in the face of this incredibly uh, uncongenial atmosphere, we've had to push outward to make what we've made. I mean, this building here is such a symbol of just sort of planting right in the middle of this atmosphere. And Swami wanted us to do this because it, it, needs, it needs to be grounded in this atmosphere, even this particular place. It has nothing to do with us, I mean, with our preferences. And it's interesting, I'm not sure if it's in this book or elsewhere. It might have been about Norman, but Master talked about one or two of the disciples that were drawn away from the ashram. And he said something about it. It's been many lifetimes since such and so a disciple um, was captured. But it's, it's a high-risk profession to come here. <laughs> Imagine going with Master to be William and having to do all that war and all that fighting. And, and, and they were his disciples, his close disciples, but... This is the peculiarity of our path. And uh, it, it, to embrace it without resistance is very important. I remember uh, when this certain man first moved up to Ananda village. He doesn't live there anymore. He just sort of defined what his spiritual life was supposed to look like. And he was always going against the currents of what was happening at Ananda village. I remember, like, for, for example, and this is, this is subtle, but we had the eight-hour meditation and then the next morning... On Christmas Eve, there was a whole series of other events. And there was a small coterie of people who decided they would also meditate all night, which, I mean, that was fine that they should meditate all night. How can you say it's not a good idea to meditate all night? But there was in their energy a kind of defiant pride. You know, and as a consequence, they missed the entire next day because they had been up all night, but they, had, they were disregarding the next day because they were going to meditate all night. And it, it didn't have what it was supposed to have. And now that's a very fine line, and I really don't want to draw that one very sharply. But this gentleman, when he went up there, and he was going to do all these, you know, austere things. And I said, why don't you just kind of go with the program? <laughs> you know, and, and he, was, he, he saw the program as some kind of a compromise. But it wasn't. It was a very balanced, uh, I mean the program, I just meant the general life. It was a very balanced, um, steady progress. So weakness on the spiritual path is not necessarily defined by something that, that looks so different, uh, but it's defined by how, how vigilant we are within our own selves. That comes out a little bit more in here. You know, how, how much purity of heart we have how attentive we are to our inner attitudes, how, how generously and graciously we relate to the world around us. And, you know, this is a, a, 
you know, this is not an easy atmosphere. There's just no question about it. And uh, if you go and spend time at the village, as an example, you, you just realize how different it could be to be in, in a place that, where everything is going in the direction that we're going. You know, this gives us an, a lot of opportunity to become strong, to work out remaining desires, to sacrifice our preferences for the sake of what we have to do. There's lots of, you can make lots of lists. Um, but the main thing is we, we need to bloom where God plants us. And if he wants to transplant us, we need to accept that also. And, uh, uh, and recognize just what Master's saying, that if we just pl- plunk for a little while and then go get something to eat, <laughs> nothing is going to come to us. All right. Um, number 230. Now Master's talking again. He's talking to the monastery, and he's, he's talking to them about their life there. And of course the, the um, catastrophe of most small communities is that they become ingrown and petty toward one another. And when what Master was dealing with there was many people who were still very worldly in their habits. And so they had very worldly attitudes and didn't even begin to understand what they were supposed to do. When I read this particular entry, I always think about how pure-minded people are at Ananda and how little of this kind of pettiness we have. But you can see what Master was dealing with. Master says, Don't gossip about others and don't be inquisitive about them. As soon as you become inquisitive about them, they will be inquisitive about you. I think that's an interesting choice of words. Um, You've no idea how quickly a rumor can fly. Give a lie, 24 hours start, I often say, and it becomes immortal. We had a man here once who started a false rumor about someone. When the rumor reached me, I started a false rumor about him. It reached him soon enough, and he came to me protesting indignantly, Do you know what people are saying about me? I said, you don't like it, do you? (laughs) You bet I don't like it, he exclaimed. Now you know, I told him, what the other person felt when you started a false rumor against him. He was so astonished. I want you to know, I continued, that I was the one who started that rumor about you. I did it to teach you a lesson. Now then, don't ever gossip about anyone again. Oh boy, six months silence. <laughs> Reflect though, if ever you feel like gossiping, how would you like to have others gossip about you? God has given people the privacy of their own thoughts so that they may correct themselves. He watches the heart, not one's actions. So sweet. All of you who live here are brothers, moreover. Why not help and encourage one another? What are you here for if not harmony? Cling staunchly to the thought that you want peace outwardly as well as inwardly. You know, a friend of mine, or it just that there was a context in which a certain person had um, not lived up to that person's own ideals. And there had been a certain amount of fallout, you know, just carelessness over a year or two. And a friend of mine was saying about how, well, you know, a group of us were together and we were all comparing notes and so on like that. And I listened for a moment and I said, that's just, that's just so unkind. How could you do that? How could you just sit there and be talking about somebody's shortcomings? I rarely hear it in Nanda. This was one of the rare occasions. I said, you know, you're all being so righteously indignant about so-and-so's failings, but how would you feel? 
You know, just, that's just always the way to ask it. How would you feel if in, in pe- people, instead of sympathetically reaching out and trying to help you, instead just sort of, just literally gossip? You know, Ananda's very interested in itself. It's a family. I, I joke sometimes that you can never be the first one to tell someone some news. <laughs> you know, so-and-so is getting married, so-and-so is going to have a baby, thus-and-so is going to take a new job somewhere. Yeah, I just, I've, I've almost never been the first one. It's like as soon as one person knows, everyone knows. I, I used to say that we were on one nerve wire. There was just one nerve wire that ran through everyone, and as soon as anything entered everywhere, it went into everybody's reality. That's not the same as gossip. It's not gossip to be genuinely interested in each other's lives, like you would be in your own brothers and sisters. It's just the news. You just want to know, what are people up to? What's happening? What's fun? What's exciting? What's different is, did you hear what they did? Did you hear what so-and-so did? Can you imagine them behaving like that? And, oh, they treated you like that? That's just how they treated me. Isn't that something? I wonder, you know, you see how it goes? And don't think for one second that those vibrations don't affect both you and the person you're talking to. Because they do. I mean, one of the reasons that Ananda people can thrive so much is because we don't do that to each other. A friend of mine here just behaved in such a way that there were lots of public repercussions. You know, the whole sort of carefully erected facade collapsed. And the individual came to me and just basically said, I just, I'm so embarrassed, I don't know how to go on. I said, you underestimate people here. You really do. I said, if you walk out, just eyes level, and just greet the next person you see with as much positive force as you can, in one day no one will even think about it, and neither will you. If you walk out shrunken like this and avoid everyone and don't have the nerve to just face into what will happen, then you'll carry it forever. I remember Haridas, who's always my good example. I don't know what he did, but he did something that was colorful and uh, warranted a good bit of conversation. And uh, this was like in the 70s. And he and I were not even, we've never been outward friends. We've been inner friends. But he, he saw me sitting outside the market. We all lived at the village. And he just walked up to me and he said, of course you've heard, what do you think? <laughs> he didn't have to say anything else. But he wasn't, he didn't really care what I thought. He was just practicing. He was just practicing the fact that so it happened, why should I be embarrassed? And so he practiced on me because I was the first person he ran into. And that's, that's really just, I know him well enough now. I didn't understand exactly then, but now I understand. He just, you push right into it. That's what Jesus uh, meant when he said, if they slap you on one cheek, turn to them the other. It's like in every way we try to withdraw into ourselves when something uncongenial happens and he, instead you step into it. I had an interesting moment in, uh, oh, this was in the middle of our litigation and there was this, at the second of the, the, the second half of the litigation when it was, it got really ugly and there was this, well, there were two, there were two really horrible lawyers, and, but they were horrible in different ways. One of them was kind of a lunatic is the only way I could describe him. The other was a, an evil genius. Genius is too strong, but an evil fox. And the, the, and the other one was just a lunatic. He was just a lunatic. I guess I said that already. He was a lunatic. And, and something was happening. And what was the context? He, he was trying to get something from me. And I just, or try to get a rise out of me or something. I can't recall exactly. But he, he pursued me. And I'm walking and he pursued me. And I was 
no, no, I didn't want to interact with him. And I, but I just remember all of a sudden, I just turned and just gave him, I told him what I felt and why I felt it. And I, I felt myself walking toward him like that. It all happened without thought. It was all just a very quick. And afterwards I thought, good girl. You know, just, I'm trying to get away with it? No, I'm just going to go right back into it. We have to work with ourselves like that all the time. Because, I mean, that, that desire to get away from it, you see, that subconsciousness. If I can just become unaware, then it'll go away. How, how are we going to um, find happiness and escape suffering? And the, the shudra way, the lowest way, is I'll just become unconscious. And to just kind of like, I, you know, I have this embarrassment, but I'll just put my head down. And it won't, you know, it's not really there. And then I'll just become less aware, and I'll become smaller, and then I'll feel better. The other way is you just get bigger than it. Just like Ari does. Of course, you've heard, what do you think? I just waited. When he asked me, I just laughed. I said, oh my, my. I said, the past lives of all men are dark with many shames, you know. <laughs> Everything in future will improve. It's like, today it's you, tomorrow it's me. It's just, what difference does it make? And even here, he says so sweetly, Master gives you the privacy of your own thoughts so that you can correct yourself. And then the other thing is he says, he watches the heart, not your actions. That's really quite a statement. Because so, you know, it's, that's where, back to the piano player, the, the power of our commitment to the spiritual path is really in our intentions. And, and really in the absolute sincerity of our aspirations. Karma is such a slimy beast. It just catches us over and over and over again. And what we think is really a, such a tiny part of who we actually are. And the, uh, um, the uh, picture we present to ourselves and to the world is such a tiny part of who we actually are. What really matters is what our actual vibration is. And, you know, sometimes people are just inept. We're just inept. We have this, this idea in our mind of what we're going to do, and we're just inept. We can't make it happen. We, can't, we don't read people correctly, or our karma isn't good. I was remembering the other day that someone had an astrological reading, and the astrologer said, you have the, the horoscope to be perceived as insincere. <laughs> It's probably like a carryover from a lifetime in which you were hypocritical in the way you related to people. So even though you have changed, that karma hasn't yet exhausted itself. And I thought, how interesting that is. So that would mean that no matter what you do, you're going to be misunderstood because you have the karma to be perceived as insincere. So you can't stop that merely by wanting to stop it. And sometimes when we ourselves have changed, people don't notice because the facade is still there. I mean, think of Swami Kriyananda and Taramata. Taramata had a past life recollection of when Swami had lots of doubts and behaved in a disloyal way. And she carried that perception of him right into this lifetime. And I've been reading this in my progress on the history of Swami's life. And after like 12, no, 22 years after she died, this man came with a posthumous message from her and, and said, he, this man came all the way from New York to see Swami Kriyananda, he was so determined to see him that he, Swami did meet with him. He told Swami this story, he immediately, the man immediately left and went back to New York. He'd had 
uh, an inspiration, a vision in meditation that he was supposed to come to Swami and give him this message from Tara Mata, who had died in 1972. And uh, Swami felt there was truth in it. And she said simply, I was living a previous incarnation in which, in fact, you had, um, after, after the guru died, after he died, you had doubts about his teachings and you pulled people away from him. So I perceived you as treacherous, but I see now that you never were treacherous. And it's just fascinating by itself. And then the man gave, he said, on, on Tara's behalf, I want to embrace you. And he gave him a, an embrace and then he left. I mean, I know that Swami would not tell a story like that unless he felt there was truth in it. But Swami himself just easily acknowledges. He said, yes, I had many doubts in past lives. Master said I was eaten up with doubt. So naturally, I would have expressed it at one time or another. Then Swami added just a most interesting phrase. He said, I saved that karma for this incarnation when it would be useful. Because it would be useful because he had to be expelled from self-realization fellowship with such absolute unequivocal force that there was no chance whatsoever that he could ever work on any way except his own. Because what he had to do could not have been done except as in, as in the way it was done, which is entirely uh, operating individually by himself and creating what he needed to create without the involvement of all those other disciples. And it was only because Tara's absolute unrelenting enmity that that happened, and false, and her false perception of him. So he said, I saved the karma just like this woman had the karma to appear insincere. If, you're, if you really are insincere, that builds up, doesn't it? It's not going to, someday you're going to have to pay that back. So Swami genuinely doubted his guru, as Master told him. Master said to him, you were eaten up with doubts. So Ma- Swamiji genuinely behaved in a way that wasn't helpful to people. And so that was there. Had to be, now of course, when Swami makes a statement like that, you're talking like a Jeevan Mukta when you say that because you're talking about karma that's there that you choose to have it worked out or not to have it worked out. You know, I saved it until it would be useful. I, he said that quite a long time ago, but I only noticed it after he had passed, unfortunately. I mean, he said it, but I didn't hear it. I wish he was still alive so I could go talk to him about it. I'd like to talk to him about a lot of other things. You know, was, all of, was everything you went through, was it all saved? Because it was useful? Yeah, who knows? Yes. Um, when I take myself, find myself taking myself too seriously, I realize that I have uh, made a mistake, and it's, uh, it's public or not, and I'm inclined to uh, preoccupy myself with it. That uh, statement that you cited from Sri Yukteswar is really, really helpful. Yeah. Just to recognize, remember, recall that he said with truth that uh, all men's lives, past lives, are dark with sh- it was stained, stained and whatever he said exactly, shame. with shame. And mm-hmm. he said, "Okay, well, why would you know? Let's just move on. There's only one way to go, and, and it helps right. me to move on when I recall that." Right. So. It's I, I mean those two phrases, both of them. But sometimes people have asked me. How are you doing for one reason or another? And I say, everything in future will improve. <laughs> Even that's a way of saying not so well, but it's also a very positive spin on it. I mean, I'm making the right spiritual effort now, so how I am now is not the issue. 
Um, I, I've always made a distinction, and it's, it's an editor's distinction. It's a wordsmith's distinction between those actions I commit and those actions I'm committed to. <laughs> because I commit a lot of actions that I'm not committed to. The ones I'm committed to are the ones that are going to give me freedom. But the others are the, um, um, the unstoppable momentum of past decisions that I haven't yet turned the tide. I've always thought, especially because I'm such a karma yogi, when I first uh, moved to Ananda Village back in 1971 and was given the responsibility, I moved in June and by July I was working in the kitchen and by August I was in charge of the kitchen at the retreat, which was the only thing we had then, and I was feeding the community, or the community there, which was about 30 people, and the guests, three meals a day, six days a week. And on the seventh day, I drove the truck into town and filled it up with supplies and did everyone's laundry. So I was busy. I had one helper, semi, semi-capable. Um, and I loved it. it wasn't, there wasn't a moment of complaint. I adored the whole experience. But I was so just completely uh, drawn out of myself in a positive way, drawn away from self-preoccupation. And I mean, I remember in the intensity of that work, I was 24, I had lots of, I have lots of energy at my age now, I had as much or more then too. But I, I, I had this vision that I still have, which is that my, my bad karma, so to speak, and I don't so much mean my evil deeds, my inclinations that take me away from where I want to be, and my deep aspiration to become uh, free of all of that. I always saw them as like two hot rods in a drag race. <laughs> you know, and I was, I was pressing, to, pressing the accelerator on the, on the uh, everything in future will improve side. And meanwhile, all the momentum from all those uh, lifetimes of confusion. And they would just, they were always working like this. But I knew if I kept leaning on this one, I always had this picture in my mind that eventually it would cut it off. And then this one would stop. But in the meantime, it was just, you just keep putting out the right energy. And what I'm committed to is this one, even though I keep committing on this side, but I'm committed to on this one. And I can't tell you how many times I've been comforted by that simple fact, God reads the heart. And our actions loom so large in our mind. And, and it's also because, as Swami put it once, he said, if you must judge yourself, and then he added, which I don't recommend in any case, he said, you have to realize that by the time anything has happened, by the nature of the universe, it's already behind you. Because by the time you've done it, it's not happening anymore. So if you can see it, it's history. He said, and so what you've done is not what you are. He said, what you are is your aspiration." Because your aspiration determines, you know, what's coming next. So he said, look only to what you aspire to become, not what you perceive that you have been before. And these are very, um, they're easy to say, they're, they're, uh, it's a real battle of Kurukshetra when you're in it. Because that, I mean, the, the meannesses of the heart, the inclination towards shame, which is one of the meannesses of the heart. It's just there. Shame, jealousy, all of those feelings are not um, easily dismissed. But if just a few uh, clear ideas that when you're not in the heat of battle, you understand clearly. 
so that uh, when you are in the heat of battle, they'll come back to you. I remember um, in this context when I was embroiled in a very, uh, a very heart-rending situation uh, where, where, where people were suffering. I mean, really, they were suffering. I was only a was only there to help. It wasn't my own. Uh, it wasn't my own life that was in in turmoil. But the lives of people that I cared about were really in turmoil. And there was just. And I was being who I am. I was there trying to hold it together and make it better, which was an appropriate role for me. And I was playing it pretty well. But I just cracked. But I I I needed to stay capable with others. So I went out into the parking lot and I sat in the car in the dark and I just collapsed into tears, which is being a female person, how that often expresses. And I was just so unhappy and just feeling the misery of everything. And then there I was in the heat of that experience. And then I I say it like this because it came in my right ear, it vibrated through my brain and came out my left ear. (laughs) And it said... Do you think this could be happening outside the will of God? And it was not a question I wanted to ask at that moment because I was just gone into the emotion of it. But because I'd practiced when it was easier, and that's the fulfillment of that that Swami told me, if you want to, you know, if you want to have the right attitude in the moment, you have to practice when it's easier. And because I have made a practice of practicing when it's easier all the time, you know, I'm constantly practicing the piano, which is I'm always trying to understand and have the right attitude. So there, when my mind was nowhere, it just came in and asked me that question. And because I'd spent so much energy clarifying and strengthening that thought within myself, it was a very odd moment. It was like, it was sort of like I was foiled in my effort, you know, to have this wild emotional moment. I just wasn't allowed to have it anymore because they they were incompatible thoughts. My sort of weeping despair was completely incompatible with the idea that how could this be outside the will of God? I I was silenced. I was just... um, I was paralyzed suddenly. And and I recognize... That's why, for example, you'll find this when Master says chanting is half the battle. Sometimes you'll find either in your sleep or when you wake up or in the midst of the most unlikely moment, a little chant will come through your mind. And it's just telling you it's the same thing. It's like when you've practiced when it was easier and now you don't even know that you need it, but it comes back to you. You're, you literally, your subconscious mind has become the ally of your superconscious mind because that's what we're trying to do. The subconscious merely feeds back to us what we have programmed into it. It's neither good nor evil. I mean, the subconscious, the inclination to try to alleviate pain by going unconscious is a subconscious impulse. But we retrain the subconscious not to do that. And then, it, and then when you need it, it suddenly turns out to be your ally. What a surprise. And it starts feeding you the positive instead of the self-defeating, you know, this is the two cars that are fighting each other like this. In that moment, just to finish that thought... When I recovered, I went into uh, the prayer demand. And I said, I started talking to Master, and I said, Well, 
if this is your plan, it is not working very well. <laughs> and I was very explicit about my point of view, which was that these people are suffering, and it is not very nice of you, and I am suffering, and I don't have much left to give here, and you need to do something. And it didn't come quite as clear to me then as it did a few years later, but it was like, you've got to help them. If, you're, if there's something you want from these people, then you need to get into this picture and start helping them because it's not working. And that's, it's perfectly fine to talk like that. I wasn't disputing it. I was just telling them that let's move this project along. And I put all my will behind that. And everything from that moment started getting better. I mean, it was all, it was all a dance. It's a solar system when you're working like that and everybody's orbit affects everybody else's and my orbit went into a big shift and it was just the divine timing of the whole thing. I, I, had, I had learned something I was supposed to learn and so that affects what has to happen next. Everybody else starts moving too. Um, so God reads the heart and pays more attention to your intentions than your actions is one of those things you really want to remember because we can be so well-intended and so terrible in what we do. I've seen it so many times. How could you possibly have thought that was a good idea? I don't know. I just thought it was a good idea. I've had so many times in my life when it just seemed like such a good idea. And then afterwards I think, what could I have been thinking? But karma blinds you. But there was nothing, there was no evil intention. When there's, a, when there's a bad intention, you still shouldn't be ashamed, but you have to own it. You have to really own, oh, yeah. I, I really, <clears throat> I'm happy that he suffered kind of thing. That, no, that's not good. That's really not good. <laughs> if I accidentally made him suffer, that's unfortunate. But if I'm happy that he suffered, that's really not good. Because what you do then is, you create an atmosphere in which that happens. And of course, it's just going to happen to you. Just as simple as that. You've moved off center to that extent, so you've got to get whacked back to center. Just bingo. That's how I saw it, finally. It's like when you start being mean-spirited in all of these things, you have to be pushed away from that. And you get pushed away from that usually because God kicks you back. You've just created all this distance, and just like Master, that you know, it was so... Master starts the false rumor. How does it feel? How do you like it? That's just exactly what happens. We're mean and nobody pays attention to us. And I mean, we're mean and we cut people off and we're not sympathetic. And then tomorrow or three incarnations from now, people are mean and not sympathetic to us. And we weep and wail and wonder why they're treating us that way. Gee, I wonder. <laughs> That's really a puzzle, isn't it? Okay. So, what else did he say? I guess I didn't read this last paragraph. All of you who live here are brothers. Moreover, why not help and encourage one another? This was the line I... Why are you here for? What are you here for if not harmony? Cling staunchly to the thought that you want peace outwardly as well as inwardly. It's very interesting to me. Swamiji, that Master put all that emphasis on harmony. What do you want here if not harmony? Swami put an enormous amount of emphasis on harmony. And it was for me, um, you know, just everybody has inclinations. It, it, it was harder for me to understand that 
because I put such an uh, uh, an emphasis on um, just making things happen in the way I thought they ought to happen, and it took me a very long time to understand that if if everybody isn't flowing with you, it's not happening the way it should happen. And even though that that can be obvious to some others, it was not obvious to me. It took me a long, long time, has taken me a long time, to just understand how all of that works together. And I guess, I, 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 I suppose what I'm balancing, and I'm just speculating now, is allowing myself to be, um, being too cowardly to go forward when people disapprove. And then therefore you have to, if you're balancing that kind of karma, you have to steel yourself to just do what you know is right, whether people are with you or not. But then there comes a point where you've gotten plenty good at that. And what you have to then learn is that you have to take other people's realities into account and respect what they need. And it's just, it's just always, you're always going back and forth like this. But I, I remember I was very moved by what Master wrote to Sister Gyanamato because he left her in charge when he would go off on his tours. And he said, I can't, he wrote to her, I, I, I can't express to you what a comfort it is to me to know that you're there because you're a peacemaker, is how he put it. Now see, what that meant was, and this is also what I've watched in Ananda Ashram, is, you know, when Jesus died at the end of his life, he, he said with satisfaction in his prayer to his father, his heavenly father, and I haven't lost any of the sheep you gave me, except the one who wanted to be lost, and he was referring to Judas in that case. I mean, Jesus had a responsibility to take care of these souls, and he, he had to take care of them. That was his responsibility. There was an, his responsibility to his disciples and to those who looked to him was the primary responsibility. And Swamiji had a responsibility for those souls Master had sent to him to take care of. And we often, especially in those early years, were just unkind to each other in such a way that sometimes people were almost, and sometimes they were, they were driven out by our, um, our, our incapacity to see the real priorities. There was one case, particularly way back in 1972, where this man behaved very, very badly, and Swamiji was in Europe, he was in India, and uh, everybody just got really judgmental, and we just all fell back into the, um, you know, the most narrow-minded kind of religious bigotry, you know, how dare you, sort of thing like that. I, I didn't, but others did. And the man's, as Swami said later, his pride, he was a very proud man, he said, you humiliated him, and he had no choice. You just left him nothing. He said he needed to save face. You needed to give him a way to work his way out of it. Um, but we didn't. And by the time Swami got back, he couldn't redeem the situation. And the man left our path and never came back. And it was tragic. And Swami later said, I knew this man had weaknesses, and I knew that I was exposing him to the potentiality of his karma, he said, but it had to be faced. It was a test that had to be faced. But then Swami said, I didn't expect to be 10,000 miles away when it happened. He said, if I had been here, Swami could have kept the sheep in the fold. And so when Master had to go away and he was sending disciples back there, he, he needed someone there who would understand that above all, we had to, we have to hold on to them. We, we, even if they're 
miserable in so many ways. If they're not destroying the whole ashram, we have to keep them in the fold. Not everyone, but all the, all the sheep that were sent to you. I, in that same context, uh, I, tell, I think I tell this in my book about Swami, I had an experience of, being, of having two different women work for me. This one woman was working for me as my assistant, and she was terribly moody. She was extremely talented, and actually very nice when she wasn't horrible. You know, when she was good, she was very, very good, and when she was bad, she was horrid, and she was often bad, um, and just moody, and, so, and then become incredibly self-involved and all sorts of things. So, you know, as a personal assistant, it was uh, not ideal. And, but I said to Swamiji, if I really try to hold her accountable, I think she'll just leave. I just don't think she has the strength for me to treat her as she really should be treated. I mean, if she deserves to be treated, if you look at it in terms of her behavior. I said, but I don't think I should. He said, whatever you do, Swamiji said, don't lose her. He said, she belongs to us. She needs to be here. He said, whatever happens, it doesn't make any difference. And, and that's what I had sensed, and I just wanted to confirm it, because I didn't want to coddle her. But he said, doesn't matter. You know, she, we just have to keep her here at any price. And so I basically created a situation in which everything she added was extra, so that her, her contribution could always make things better, but her contribution was never the the decision as to whether anything happened or not. Then a few years later, I had another person working for me who was equally impossible. Yeah, probably equally. And I, I spoke to Swami about it then, and I said, you know so-and-so, and this is what you said before. He, I said, but I, this one feels different to me. He says, yes. He said, this, uh, this person is making up her mind. She's trying to decide whether or not she's really going to commit to the spiritual path. He said, challenge her and just let her decide. And so I did, you know, I just, I, I treated her more as you would in, an, in a, a normal situation in which I, I fed back to her that she needed to be accountable instead of just forgiving everything. And she, she stuck it through with me, but eventually she blew out of Ananda. She just couldn't, she didn't have the strength. But it was so interesting, it was so different, wasn't it? And so it's not like it's, it's peace at any price, but there's values that are so much higher than just the obvious that we're doing. And that was Master's dedication to Gyanamata. And that was the point that I just missed. I just, I, couldn't, I just couldn't always see, I mean, although I'm speaking of myself actually noticing it sometimes, but sometimes I just couldn't see that what I was pushing on wasn't the main, wasn't the main event. It was a peripheral event. And... and Friendship, harmony, support, respect, giving people a chance, you know, all of those things were just so much bigger than the detail of this little thing or that little thing. Um, everybody has their temperament and strengths and weaknesses and you have to learn to work with it, but didn't you come here for harmony? Meaning, didn't you come here to learn to love? Didn't you come here to learn to get along? You just, you just do we want to just keep on being who we've always been? I mean, ooh, horrible. What a horrible thought. That's the real curse. And I was talking to the children about the play, and uh, I, I think, and I was talking about how they said their costumes look weird, and I was telling them that they ought to look weird, their children, because, you know, you're supposed to be somebody else. You should look totally strange. When you put your costume on, all your friends should freak out immediately. 
Yeah, because, of course, you don't look like yourself. But then later I was coming, I said, they're a little too young to be so conscious of the incredible anguish of being. You know, when they're five or six, they don't necessarily remember. Although some of them do. By 13 or 14, they're beginning to remember. (laughs) All right. Number two, three, one. Actually, let's just take a little break. It's a few minutes early, but let's take a little break now. Okay, and then we'll come back for this one. Number two, three, one. The Master gave the following advice for when I lectured. First, meditate deeply. Then, holding on to your inner calmness, reflect on what you might say. Write down your ideas. Add a few illustrative examples, including a funny story or two, because when people laugh, they relax and become more receptive. End your talk with a story from the preceptor lessons. Then put your notes away and forget about them. Interesting. When you lecture later, ask the spirit to flow through you. Remember a few salient points from your outline, but otherwise let the, let the words flow from the inner source of spirit. Finally, never speak from ego consciousness or you won't feel inspired. There's, there's so much in what he's saying there. Um, what I find interesting, meditate deeply, then reflect on what you would say. And he, he doesn't actually say in there, you know, spend three days studying all the available materials. Not that there necessarily was that much, but he doesn't actually, I realize reading at this time, he doesn't speak of studying and reading and, you know, gathering everything that everybody ever wrote on the subject. Nowadays we have so much information. When people start to um, prepare a talk on any subject, you're just almost overwhelmed by all the books you haven't read or haven't notated or haven't outlined. But what Swami says is, and what Master said was, meditate deeply and reflect on what you want to say. I often, insofar as I ever try to help anyone with this kind of thing, and it is not my strong suit to help other people learn how to do this, because I don't understand how it's done. It's so, it's just been so much a part of me for so long, I, I can't, I can't create a process. I just don't, I don't know how to create a process. And Swami told me not to. Said, don't don't think about teacher training. It's not your job, because I can't systematize it. But there is one thing that I've observed that I suggest to people: if you're asked to give something public, if anybody just asked you the question over tea, you would always have an answer. If somebody asked you, you know, how do you understand the concept of free will? You know, are we really sinners? I mean, even if it was a great big picture, what is karma? You know, how do you keep from getting discouraged? How do you find time for meditation? What does, what, who is Divine Mother? What's the Trinity? I mean, just ask anything, no matter how big the question. And just imagine yourself sitting with anybody, anywhere, and they would ask you a question. And you wouldn't say, excuse me, give me two days to study it. I'll get back to you next week. I mean, you might in the end say, as I have said, many times I'll call Prakash, I'll call Jyotish. You know, I, this is as much as I know. I'm going to ask somebody who knows more. But nonetheless, you would always answer. Because even if you would just answer to speculate. I mean, I just went through a long speculative process about thoughts and things that I do. I'm just trying to figure it out. Let's just figure it out together. But you would say something because you're engaged in the path. Too often when people know that they're going to have to explain something, they, they try to learn in the week that they have what they don't already know. And what I've seen is when you try to learn it, in order to present it, you often get indigestion. 
because you're just trying to take in too much material that you don't have any uh, life experience with. And then you have to read all those notes because you can't remember them um, because you don't really know them. You just studied them and wrote them down today. So what, what, the way Master puts that, I mean, it, I never thought of it till I read it this afternoon, even though I've read this before. Meditate deeply and then reflect on what you would say. So I, I suggest to people, before you study, write three or four points that you already know. And then when you study and are interested in what other people have said, only look for things that relate to what you already know. Because otherwise, there's just too much material. And, and you, you get so mixed up. But if you already know what you can stand in and say, because we can always say something. Swamiji always uses the example of Haridas when Swami went to Los Angeles in the very early 70s and he was doing a program there and we were all just running around trying to help make it happen and Haridas, who was from that area, went to some local television station to try to get an interview for Swami. So he's in there trying to persuade them to, you know, have this other guy come in and speak and the, whoever he was talking to said, well, I don't know anything about him, but you're very interesting. I'd like you to be on the program. So I'm, I think Haridas was 18. Maybe he was 19 at that point. He'd been in Ananda like two months. That's what Swami said, although it might have been a year and two months. I'm not sure. But it was, it was early. It was more than two months because he came a year before I did and I was already there. So it must have been a year and two months. But he was young. In many ways, he was young, uh, apparently. And he, he came to Swami, and Swami's first response was, you know, oh dear. <laughs> you know, this, we're trying to make this big impact, and oh dear. But then Haridas got on the program, and he just, he was absolutely wonderful. Oh, he did do it, because they weren't at all interested in Kriyananda. They were interested in him, and it was like, why say no? So he had to do this interview, but he always spoke completely sincerely from what he really knew. He didn't try to be anything he wasn't, and he didn't feel intimidated by what he didn't know. And he had on his, you know, his astrological bangle like this. He was wearing it in some way that they saw it. And, you know, there's a long explanation. Um, it, uh, pure metals have inherent power and they have magnetism and they give energy and that's why kings and queens have always worn gold and jewels and that's why, you know, all these things. This is their real value is in higher ages and these relate specifically to the astrological emanations of certain planets and this is a formula that's good for everyone. I mean, that's just the beginning of what you can say about it. They asked Haridas about it and said, I don't really quite understand. <laughs> He said, I really, I'm really not sure. He said, but whenever I look at it, it reminds me of what I've committed my life to. How can you do better than that? And because it was, he, he stayed within the sphere of what he really knew. He was completely humble. But he knew a lot because he'd given his life to this path. And he knew, he knew completely what he was doing. The capacity to explain it is a different ability. But... If you know what you're doing, the Spirit will inspire you. And, and that's essentially what Swami was saying. Now, of course, Master had Swamiji reading all the, all the lessons and corresponding with the students and editing his writing and writing magazine articles. And so this is the balancing factor to this preparation. I've, I've again, tried to explain this to people. You study all the time. You don't learn it 
suddenly when you have a class. And yes, of course, you might have a narrow subject that you suddenly have to learn more about, but whatever it is, you have to start with what you know because you're not going to be able to learn it to teach it. Or if you do, you're going to be like a college professor or you're going to be academic. I mean, this is what they do in academia. They get everybody's opinion and they put it out there and you're not committed to anything. And that's, that's college lecture. That's intellectual training. That's not spiritual training. Spiritual training is you. Who am I? What can I offer? And Haridas, you know, had, had came to Ananda at a very young age. He actually, you know, got involved with Master when he was in high school. As soon as he was out of high school, very soon after he came, you know, he didn't need to know more than that because it was him. And when you're, when you're doing this kind of presentation, it's just who you are. And if you're not much, you're not going to be more for having a whole lot of notes. <laughs> you know, you're just going to be those notes. But let me think what the rest of that piece was. Let me think for a second. Oh, yes. But you do have to apply your mind to it. If you have responsibility to share the teachings, which all of us have responsibility to share the teachings. We're talking about it formally here. You need to, you need to learn them. You need to pay attention. But it's not just, oh, now I'm going to study because I have a class. So yes, of course you can study, but you need to be reviewing. In other words, you need to be working at it all the time. Because then, when you put your notes aside and you ask Spirit to speak through you, Spirit has something to work with. <laughs> that was an experience that I had when Shivani and I went. It might have been our very first lecture tour. She always had this great interest in healing, which is an interest I've never particularly had anyway, but also Shivani had it covered. And so we traveled for about six weeks and, and we alternated programs. And she just had the whole, she did, we did all these programs about healing and I just didn't know anything about it really. I'd never studied it and I didn't think about it very much. And then her husband Arjuna was, had this huge contract to build some big building in Santa Cruz for some other spiritual group and the project ran into a lot of trouble and it was a really dicey situation financially and, and she, she was a big support to him and he needed her. So she bailed. Just like the first week of this trip, she had to leave the Northwest and go back and, and help him through whatever that was. So I was left with all her programs. And she left me all her notes and all of this. And it wasn't that I knew nothing but I certainly knew very little compared to other things because it just wasn't my interest. So I'm, I remember standing, I, I think we were in Longview, Washington, that's where I think we were for some reason, and I'm standing up there having to give Shivani's subject. And I, it was f fascinating to me because, you know, I, have a, I was born with this mouth, so I can, I can manage, I can usually fill the airwaves. But I remember standing up there in this little room and I can see what the little room was like and I would start saying what I knew and uh, uh, I could feel, I was intuitive enough to feel what people wanted. And I just sort of had, it, this all happened on a not quite conscious level, but I had to sort of say, I'm sorry, I, this is all I know. <laughs> you know, I just, don't, I just don't have any more, there's nothing else in the bank here. So I know you're asking for more on this, but I just don't have it to give you. We're just going to have to keep talking about this. So I couldn't be what I usually am, which is, let's just go, because I can just go because there's a lot in the bank by now, especially after all these years, but even there always was, but not on that subject. And it was, it was real interesting to me, the difference between 
preparation and intuition and reliance on grace and and your part of it. It was the, it was. I never forgot the lesson about um, he can help you so far, but if you haven't done your homework, but your homework is not to have that, you know, not to be so reliant on your notes, because because the other thing that happens, you see, when you're so reliant on your notes, is you've prepared a talk, but you're not in relation to the people. And and you have prepared a talk that was perhaps true when you prepared it. That's why Master says, make those notes, do that thinking, get the outline, and then put it away. Because when you finally get there, it's a moment in time that never existed until you're standing there. And in that moment, you need to know what's needed. And it's not likely that the exact thing that you planned is going to be what's needed now because how would you know? Swamiji used to, when he would go to uh, speak, he would always go a little early and he would meditate somewhere in the hall. We always had to have a little meditation room ready for him. And he would say, you know, whoever you're sending, Lord, let me serve them. And he would just be, right then, he would try to tune in to who was coming to the room that he was in, to the reality of this moment. I, I, so many times on Sunday, people will say to me, oh, you, were just, you spoke just what I was thinking. On the way here, we were just talking about it. And my response is always, well, thank heaven. Otherwise, I would have had nothing to say. <laughs> it's because there you are. And that is what... You know, it's, not, it's not like... Uh, you know, people think it's so mysterious. It's really not mysterious at all. It's like, here we are all together. And what's needed? And so, of course, what's needed is what you were thinking. What else would be needed? And all, all I've done is done my homework so that when that thought or intuition or whatever it is comes to me that this is what we should talk about, I have a facility for doing that. And it's my job, and so I know how to do it. It's just someone said to me, it's something my chakras know how to do. <laughs> and they just do. And I know that's, that's what it is. But still, you see, all of these things apply. So you, you should never, ever, ever, ever give the same talk twice, in my opinion, because it's never the same moment. It's never the same crowd. It certainly should be recognizable. You can't reinvent a lot of these things. But even if you're saying the same words, it's different because it, you know how it is if, somebody, if you talk to someone and they ask you a question and you say, well, as I've always said, you know, as I told my son Albert last year, you know, it's just like, whoa, give me a break. It's like in that moment, somebody's asking and it's completely new. Even if it's, of course, the same old, same old. Because how could it be, how could the divine law change just because it's someone else in the room? But, you know, communication is always wonderful. You're, you're there and it's needed to be said. And, and then it just goes away because it's not, uh, it doesn't exist except in that moment. Do you understand? Now, of course, you have to, as Swamiji said, he never would prepare his talk. So when we all started out as ministers, we thought we didn't have to prepare our talks. <laughs> no, he said, <laughs> it's not true. And I used, to, I used to carry notes and I would even sometimes look at them. <clears throat> and I would, I would, uh, I still do sometimes. But when I was earlier on it, I would have those three. I usually had three. I had three ideas that I that I really liked 
that I walked into the room with. I mean, I'm talking about a Sunday sermon, for example. Other classes, I would have more. But I would have uh, some ideas. So that if I just became lost and confused, which we do, I could go there. Either go there by opening it up and looking at it, or in my mind, find one of them. You know, so that in, in the, because we speak extemporaneously, you can shift a lot. And then you have to remember what we call the first law of holes, which is a well-known law which is if you are in a hole, stop digging. Meaning, if you find yourself way beyond and you're saying things you don't know anything about and you really know you shouldn't be saying them, close your mouth. <laughs> just stop doing it. And in our way of speaking, you can. You just stop and then you just pick it up from another thread. Famously at Ananda Village, one, one very green minister in the very early years of our doing this, famously he gave a servant a Sunday sermon on the difference between Nirvikalpa Samadhi and Sabakalpa Samadhi. And that was when we learned the first law of holes. <laughs> because he should have stopped. <laughs> but instead he just plowed on mercilessly. <laughs> and he didn't have the foggiest idea of what he was talking about. I mean, it was so terrible, it was humorous. You know, because it was just like, he could never have answered. It's just, you stay, stay within your realm. Haridas says, I don't know. I really don't. My guru told me to buy it, I bought it, and every time I look at it, it tells me what I'm doing. How could you be better than that? Anyway, so it's very, it's very important. And, and also, this is the, just the last thing to remember, nobody ever remembers what you said anyway. They really don't. I mean, you work so hard at crafting it just so, and they don't remember. Swami used to tease us. We'd say, oh, Swami, that was such a wonderful talk. What did I say? You're just kind of like, all of a sudden your mind would go completely blank. And you would realize you didn't have a single intellectual concept in your mind. Unless you had, as Chittambar said, prepared for that by remembering something. Because what you really got was the vibration. And they don't get the vibration if you're so stuck on the information. They get the vibration when you're communicating. And you have to communicate intelligently and you have to be prepared. Although the first really person of really elevated consciousness I ever met in my life was a Swami in the Ramakrishna order who came from India. I have no idea what his name was. I used to, I lived in Los Angeles at that time and I used to go up into the Hollywood Hills where the Ramakrishna Society had a temple. I didn't go every Sunday but I went some Sundays and they had a Sunday morning service. They followed the American model. And I remember sitting in the little chapel there. I was probably 19. And this man started to talk. I have an intellectual, rational mind. And I tried to follow his talk. And I couldn't. I just, you know, they're just, it, 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 was, it was English. And I could understand his English. But there was no thread that I could find. But the more he talked, I just felt, I felt so uplifted. And he was just, presenting his consciousness and he was making perfect sense but I couldn't I couldn't hold what he was giving on an intellectual level because it was so far beyond that and I, I still to this day I can see his face afterwards sort of going up in that line and I, can, I, I, I see him as kind of leaning a little like this with his eyes that way although he must have just looked at me but I never and then I met Swami a number of years after that in between, I never met anybody like that. 
But I knew it was something completely else, and I knew, even when he was talking, that he was doing something different that I'd never seen anybody do before. And, and so it's always stayed with me. And I, I remember, I've, I've shared with you, I remember one night Swami was speaking in here. And I always, especially, well, especially toward the end, after I learned, in the early years Swami taught, and he really taught concepts, and he gave these, you can get all these, all these talks are on treasures, and you can get them in different places. He gave these incredibly dense lectures where he would really explain a lot of ideas, which is where I learned a lot of it. I learned it through my years from him. But in the later years, he wasn't, there were so many of us teaching, he didn't have to do that anymore. He didn't have to come and teach us about the yamas and the niyamas and the chakras and the law of karma. He just had to inspire us to want to be on the path. It was, you know, much more relaxing for him. Um, and so I, w- I tried to listen to... I, the, the, my practice when listening to him was to be in the, in the moment as much as I possibly could. Because a lot of times when we listen to someone, we're anticipating. And so I would try to listen to him vibrationally. I, and just literally one word at a time as he offered it so that I could just be in the vibration of what he was saying and not in the idea of what he was saying. And, and when I would do that, I became... I remember one particular night, he was, he was talking in a quite animated way. But I, I became very conscious of the fact that there was just so much spiritual energy flowing through him that the energy came first and then he was pasting words on it. And, and those words, because his chakras knew how to do it, he was brilliant as always and articulate and funny and all of those things. But I could feel that it was energy that he pasted words on it so we would have a way of receiving it rather than anything else. Because of the way I was listening, it was fascinating. And it helped me also understand, oh, that's why, of course, we can't remember anything. Because we're, the, it's kind of almost like Master would tell jokes so we would relax. He would talk so we'd have something to concentrate on. There would be content, so we'd have something to concentrate on. But that wasn't the exchange. The exchange was just vibrational. But being Silicon Valley devotees, even devotees, we had to have content. We couldn't just have him sit there in silence or tell jokes or something. We wouldn't have known what to do. <laughs> he, had to, he had to play the, play the role. Fascinating, isn't it? But when you see it in its apex, you also realize uh, what the actual intention is here. You know, uh, when I went to speak, they, I, I had Episcopal minister friends in the Northwest for a while, and, and from time to time I gave seminar, I gave sermons in their church, and I, sometimes at Unity, those were, this was 30-some years ago. And I don't know if it was Unity or the Episcopal, I'm not sure which one it was, but they had two services, and they wanted to have a copy of my sermon so they could give it out. I said, no, I don't think so. (laughs) And they wanted, what they did at Unity was they recorded the first service and then they sold it after the second service because they could copy it like that. So they would, because they assumed it would be a repeat. But sometimes the second service had nothing to do with the first service because it was a wholly different group of people. But I just, I remember the first time because I was very inexperienced at that point, just the mere idea. You know, and I, would, I had my Episcopal minister friends talk about how Saturday you always have to spend writing your sermon. Uh, oh? <laughs> but of course, that's just the way they were trained. 
That's how they were trained. And that's just not how we were trained. Just different. Because this is our training right here. I mean, this one paragraph is what Swami quotes to us many times, but the whole thing, as you can see from everything I said, is right there. Okay. Is it on? You so totally amaze us all when we come to Sunday service because everyone will then leave or file out thinking that it was t- the, 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 the talk that day was exactly what they needed to hear. It was just what they had been thinking on the way over. It's just what happened to them this week. It was the answer they needed because it was everything. And everyone in the room is thinking that. And we can't all... No, yeah, but, but actually, there's but it's the vibration. You no, see. but there's, there's an answer to that too, which Swami actually said to me once. I don't. He, he he brought it up. I didn't say it. He said, "The more central truth, the more it applies to everyone." Isn't that interesting? Because that because that was actually a very interesting answer to that. So, so you think it was specifically for you, but the fact was that it was from the point of origin, and it resonates with your origin. And then you put the clothes on it that you need to to put on it. And and there is also thank you for having thoughts. Otherwise, I'd have nothing to say. <laughs> but I, I, it's not. It's just my job, and Divine Mother helps me do my job, and I'm just really grateful that she helps me to do it. You know, there's a commitment to to excellence there, but it's just grace. You just you try not to speak from ego. You try not to speak from mind. You try to speak from heart and spirit and. After a while, she takes mercy on you. Shivani's prayer was perfect. This was what the prayer Shivani taught me right at the beginning. Lord, I have no mind and you have no mouth, so let's work together here. <laughs> and that's just the way it works. <laughs> yeah, that's always been it. And it's just like, oh gosh, sir, they're all sitting out there and they're expecting me to say something. It's the pow- I say every sermon is the power of desperate prayer manifested. Really, it's like, oh dear, here we are, and look at them, they've all come. You know, you really, please don't disappoint them. You know, what are we going to do? And I don't want to tell you how many times. It's like, oh my gosh, here it is. It's crunch time. (laughs) What's going to (laughs) happen? And, of course, I've been doing this for 40 years. It's hundreds and thousands, hundreds of thousands of hours. But all of that is... I study all the time, and it's my job. And he just makes sure that I don't come a cropper too often. Some days are better than others, but you just do your best. And then you try to forget it. Because this woman said, you don't want to just remember, oh, that went over well, I'll just say it that way again. Because it really, it never goes over well the second time. Not once have I ever seen it. It It comes into what I call talking down a tube. You're standing there, and you're, you start just talking from memory, as I call it, where you just start repeating what worked the last time. And I, you sort of feel everybody receding farther and farther away. You're trying to reach them down this long tube. And they're all just backing up, and they're backing up. Oh, dear, something's not happening. <laughs> all right, friends. That'll be tonight. Oh, what we did, we did. We started at... We started at 229 and we finished at 231.